Amen. Thanks, Jake and Mark and Tony, for leading us tonight. If you have a Bible, you need to take it out. Our passage tonight is 2 Samuel chapter 23. We're going to look at verse 8, really through the end of the chapter. Second uh, Samuel 23. You can find a similar passage in 1 Chronicles 11. We're not going to look at that passage tonight, uh, but you might want to reference that later. Our focus is going to be 2 Samuel 23. At the end of last year, 2019, a movie came out, and the movie was titled 1917. My guess is you've heard of the movie. Uh, It's familiar to you, even if you haven't gone to see it. I've not gone to see it. I'm at the stage of life where uh, all of my movie ticket purchases are Pixar movies, and uh, 1917 is not a Pixar movie, so I've not been to see it. But the story is pretty simple. It's a World War I story, and it's a story of two British soldiers who are sent to deliver a message, and the message that they're delivering is essentially calling off a British attack against the Germans because the Germans are waiting uh, for the attack to happen, waiting in ambush, as it were. And this movie is a little bit different than a typical war movie in the sense that it only shows a very small window of time. There's not a lot of, of of time that's covered in the movie. It's just a very small glimpse. What you see is sort of what you get. And it's unique in that rather than using multiple scenes throughout the movie, it's essentially one long camera shot as you follow these characters trying to deliver this message. It's a very successful movie commercially. Uh, As of a couple of weeks ago, it had made over $350 million in the box office. And I don't know about you, that used to sound like a lot of money, but when your nation's voting on $6 trillion stimulus, $350 doesn't seem quite so big. But commercially, it was a a success. Uh, The critics loved it. It was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, three Golden Globes, eight Critics' Choice Awards, nine British Academy of Film Awards. Uh, Many people, I've seen many articles and posts on social media, people saying it's the best war movie that's ever been made. Uh, We tend to say things like that a lot. This is the best. We forget what has come before it. Uh, We like things that are new. We like things that are different. Uh, And so we sort of are quick to jump on this best idea or this best bandwagon. Other people have praised the cinematography of the movie, but said the storyline really isn't all that accurate because it assumes that there was a value on the common soldier's life in World War I, and some say that really wasn't the case. And so some people have some, some criticism for it there. I bring up this movie because it's the, the most recent or a recent big blockbuster war movie in the United States of America. And as Americans, we love war movies. I just tick off some names that are probably familiar to you. Saving Private Ryan, The Alamo, Dunkirk, The Great Escape, Platoon, Patton, Black Hawk Down, Braveheart, American Sniper, 300, Pearl Harbor, The Patriot, Schindler's List, Hacksaw Ridge, Glory, Unbroken, Last of the Mohicans. I mean, we could go on and on and on. And as I say these movie titles, for many of you, you think, oh, I loved that movie. We love war movies. And I I stopped to think this week, why do we love war movies so much? And I think there's four things that appeal to us in a war movie. One is just experience. Most of us are not soldiers. Most of us are not going to fight in wars. Most of us are are not going to experience combat. And watching a well-made war movie gives you a little bit of a taste, maybe just the tiniest bit of a taste of what it would be like 
to be in combat, an experience that most of us won't ever have otherwise, uh, heroism. We love stories of heroism, and, and war movies and war stories are filled with heroic deeds and bravery and courage and all of these things that we aspire to. Patriotism. Many war movies give us a sense of pride in the fact that we are Americans and we stand for something and we believe in certain things and we're willing to sacrifice and fight for those things. And at the same time, there are some war movies that are critical of war or critical of things that happen in war. And in a movie, you can step back with perspective and say, maybe this wasn't where we needed to be fighting or maybe this wasn't how we needed to be fighting. But we love war movies in the United States of America. So on Wednesday nights, we've been looking at the life of David. You cannot talk about the life of David without talking about war. And you can't talk about war without talking about the soldiers who fight in a war. And that's our focus tonight. Yes, we're going to talk about David, but really our focus is going to be on a group of people that the Bible refers to as David's mighty men. David's mighty men. We'll start with a quote from Alan Redpath. He says this, at this point in the story, we're looking back from a high peak. David the king, although for a time rejected, had returned and was administering his kingdom. In 2 Samuel 23 are listed the names of men who stood with him through thick and thin, men who were identified with him at any cost. And I just want to say one thing before we jump in and talk about some of these guys. This list of people shows up in 2 Samuel 23, and it also shows up in 1 Chronicles 11. There's a slight difference, and the difference is interesting. In 2 Samuel, the list of David's mighty men comes at the end of David's life. The author essentially tells you everything that he has to tell you, almost, about David, and then he tacks on this chapter about the mighty men. But the chronicler, writing at a different time and for a different purpose, he includes David's mighty men at the beginning of his story. He doesn't wait to the end. He jumps in and he tells you right out of the gate, hey, these were some of the guys who are with David. And maybe it's two sides of the same coin, trying to make a, a different but complementary point. Maybe in 2 Samuel the point is, these are the guys who stuck with David no matter what. They were with him through the end, and they were the guys that enabled him to make it all the way to the end. The chronicler is looking at it later in history with more perspective, and he's saying, hey, these guys were with David from the get-go. Nothing that he accomplished was accomplished without these men, these mighty men being a part of David's life. So you can compare the lists. I just want to point your attention or direct your attention to a few things in 2 Samuel 23. So if you have a Bible, we're going to look at a few verses here. And one of the things I want you to see is this. David was supported by a group of people known as the Three. This was not the most creative name for a group of soldiers that was ever invented, but that's what they were called, the three. And you guessed it, there were three of them. You read about these guys in 2 Samuel 23, beginning in verse 8. And we'll just read a few verses here. You read about a, a guy that we'll call J.B., Joshib Bashabeth. I'm just going to stick with J.B. You read about a guy named Eliezer, and you read about a guy named Shema. These are the three, and let's just read what the text says. Verse 8, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had, Joshua Bashabeth, J.B., a Tachmanite, was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I know how stories get told and how they get passed down, and I imagine 
if this guy JB took on 800 people at one time with a spear, I imagine that was a story he liked to tell at dinner parties and social gatherings and getting the grandchildren around. I'm sure that's something that was repeated often. Pretty impressive, 800 men he killed at one time. Look at verse 9. Next to him among the mighty three, or next to him among the three mighty men, was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He arose, this is Eliezer, he arose and he struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. What the author's telling you is he fought so long and he held that sword so tight, he got a hand cramp and he couldn't let go of his weapon and he just kept fighting. Everyone else had run away, he's fighting, his hand clung to the sword and the Lord brought about a great victory to that day and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Again, you can imagine that's a story that was repeated in family gatherings, at dinner parties. Look at verse 11, Shema. Next to him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi where there was a plot of ground full of lentils and the men fled from the Philistines. But he, that is Shema, took his stand in the midst of the plot and he defended it and he struck down the Philistines and the Lord worked a great victory. Again, you can imagine Shema telling people this story. Hey, Everyone else ran away, but I stayed and fought, and the Lord worked a great victory. So these are the three. There's one more story. I'll let you read it. It's in verse 13 to 17. There's a story about the three told where the three are with David one night, and David says, uh, he's sort of on the run. He's far from home, and he says, I wish I had a drink of water from the well in my hometown. So this would be like me telling the staff, uh, I wish I could have a, an iced tea from the water still in Amarillo. I just want to go home and get an iced tea from my favorite iced tea shop. David says, I wish I had a drink of water from my favorite well in my hometown. The three hear it. They take off. They sneak behind what at the, at the moment was enemy lines, Philistine territory. They go into Bethlehem. They get the water. They sneak back past the Philistines. They bring the water to David. And David is so moved by the entire act. He says, how could I ever drink this? You risked your lives to bring me a drink of water. And you can almost imagine David saying, I really don't need the water. I really didn't need that water. It was just something that I said. And these men were so loyal to David, they said, David, we'll risk our lives to get you a drink of water from the well in your hometown. David took that water and instead of drinking it, he poured it out and he offered it as a sacrifice to the Lord to dignify the heroism and the courage and the bravery. So those are the three. Now let's take a minute and talk about another group. Again, the name is not very creative, but David was supported by the 30. So you've got the three, and then you've got the 30. And you start reading about the 30 if you're looking in your Bible at 2 Samuel 23, starting in verse 18. We're not going to read a lot here. I just want to point out a few of these guys. And one of them I want to point out to you is a, a guy named Abishai. This was David's nephew. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, we've talked about Abishai, David's nephew. The text says he was the most famous of the 30 and he was the chief of the 30. So there was a chief of the three and a chief of the 30. Abishai was that man. Another one I would point out to you is in verse 20, Beniah. There's a man named Beniah. He was known as a doer of great deeds. And the text just fills in some of the, the questions you may have. It says, one time he killed two Ariels. 
that's a word in the Hebrew that nobody really knows what it means. And we read that and we say, well, whoop-de-doo. The other guy took on 800 at one time, JB. What's so impressive about two? But something about these aerials was impressive enough that they wrote it down and he said, this guy, Benaiah, killed two aerials. The text says that one day he jumped into a pit with a lion on a snowy day. More than likely, they're talking about a well. There was a lion in the well. They didn't want the lion to be stuck in the well, to die in the well, to poison the well. And of all the people who were there, Benaiah said, I'll go in. It's snowy, it's cold, there's a lion in the hole. I'll jump in, kill the lion, and get him out. He was a doer of great deeds. There's a story told here that he fights an Egyptian, and he goes into the fight without a weapon. He steals the Egyptian's weapon and kills him with his own weapon. And then way down at the end, verse 23, it says, He was renowned among the 30. He wasn't one of the three, but David set him over his bodyguard. So there's Benaiah. One more name specifically I would point out to you without a lot of comment. Verse 39, Uriah the Hittite was one of the 30. So you realize that, yes, these men were close to David, they were loyal to David, but things weren't always as they should have been in the relationship between David and these men. And we've talked about Uriah in recent weeks. One thing I would acknowledge is that if you really sit down and you take the list of the three and the 30 here, and you compare it to the list in First Chronicles 11, you'll notice some discrepancies. Some people are quick to jump on that and say, look, there's a mistake. They can't even get the list right. I just would remind you, this is a list of soldiers. Soldiers die in battle, and it's very likely that as some of these soldiers died, they were replaced by others. Others were promoted into their position, and I think the discrepancies can be easily reconciled thinking about what we're actually listing out. The question that we really need to deal with is, why is this in the Bible? We've talked about David's life from David being anointed by Samuel to David running from his life from Saul and David and Goliath and David being anointed the king and uh, reigning in Hebron and then reigning in Jerusalem. Why does the Bible give two chapters, 2 Samuel 23, 1 Chronicles 11, to talking about these men, David's mighty men. I just want to give you a few ideas, six thoughts on why this section of Scripture is important. Number one, the text, the passages, the verses about David and his mighty men teach us a, les a lesson about leadership. Right? There's a lesson about leadership here. And I'll just appeal to Robert Bergen. He talks about this. He says, What's the practical value of having this list in Scripture? I mean, it really does kind of feel like the old stories you hear from Grandpa when you get everyone together. Why is this in here? Well, he says it demonstrates David's willingness to reward those under his command when they perform their task with excellence. It reflects David's great skill in relationships and suggests a model to be emulated by godly leaders of all generations. You read this story, my mind goes to Moses. You remember when Moses brought the people out of Egypt and he's trying to lead them, he's trying to judge them, he's trying to guide them and counsel them and teach them. And Moses' father-in-law looks at the situation and says, you're killing yourself. You can't do all of this, Moses. You've got to delegate some of this to other people. That's essentially what David has done in his kingdom. He's not trying to do it all himself, but he's delegating some of these responsibilities to his men. That's the same principle of leadership that ought to apply in a church. 
right? The New Testament church is not designed so that one person does everything. The New Testament church is designed to be led by, guided by, taught by a, a group, or we talk about a plurality of pastors, a plurality of elders. And so there's something to be learned here about leadership. David is the king. David gets the limelight. But these guys have real leadership responsibility that David has delegated to them. Secondly, David and his mighty men teach us a lesson about success. How does one achieve success? Well, David gives us a picture here. And again, I think Robert Bergen is helpful. Bergen says this, David's unparalleled success was the result not only of his relationship with the Lord, but also of his valiant soldier's efforts. In this rather extended section, some 36 individuals are signaled out by name for their brave deeds and or positions in David's administration. David's the leader, but he's surrounded by a group of unsung heroes. And I hope you understand that's exactly how a church ought to work, right? The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, look, in a church, people have a variety of gifts, Some lead, some are more visible, some are more prominent, but you need all of the gifts. You need all of the people. I'll just give you an example of this from last week. Last week, uh, the whole world started shutting down, churches and schools and businesses and all sorts of things shutting down. And early in the week, uh, some of our staff, myself and some others, were really kind of scrambling, trying to, to get a live stream going, and we've got something that's passable for now. We're working on something that might be a little bit better on Sunday, but we spent an incredible amount of time just trying to figure out what's the schedule going to be? What's the calendar going to be? How are we going to pull this off? What's the logistics of all of this? While we were doing that, we had a team of people behind the scenes early in the week serving in our building a funeral meal to a family who had lost a loved one. That didn't make the live stream. Nobody made a Facebook post about that. It wasn't visible. It wasn't prominent. Nobody gave them a bunch of high fives and said, hey, you guys are the best. But that's the way the church works. That's how a church is successful when you have all sorts of people doing all sorts of things. Some of them visible. They end up on a live stream. They make a Facebook post. Some of them behind the scenes that you never know and you're not even heartily aware of. Number three. Why is this in the Bible? Why is it important? David and his mighty men teach us a lesson about spiritual warfare. There's a lesson here about spiritual warfare. I just want you to think about war movies one more time. I read you a list of some just a moment ago. Think about your favorite war movie. Think about why you like that movie. Maybe it's the character, maybe it's the storyline, maybe it's the the action scenes, maybe it's the the history behind the movie. Think about sitting down and watching that movie and think about the courage and the heroism and the bravery that you see in that movie and how it affects you, how how it moves you, how you can feel the drama when you watch a good movie that that brings all of those things out. For some reason, you and I have a tendency, I know I have this tendency and I imagine you do too, We have a tendency to think that physical war is more real than spiritual war. We just tend to operate that way. We tend to operate that way in all areas of life, as if physical things are more real than spiritual things. As if 
physical warfare is more real and more serious and more dangerous than spiritual warfare. And the Apostle Paul just simply says it's not. He says in Ephesians 6, we are wrestling against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's not talking about sci-fi. He's not talking about guardians of the galaxy and, and bad superhero villains and all that sort of stuff. He's talking about a very real, you can't see it, you maybe can't put your finger on it, but it's real. It's very real. He's talking about our walk with the Lord. He's talking about our families. He's talking about our churches. He's talking about our missionaries who are far from home sharing the good news of the gospel. He's talking about everyday life. And what Paul's talking about requires real courage, real bravery, and real heroism. When you look at a group of men like this who do amazing things, remarkable things, heroic things, brave things, courageous things, there's something that you ought to pull out and say, I need not less than what they displayed. I need more than what they displayed. Yes, they were brave. Yes, they were courageous. Yes, they were bold. Yes, they were, they were tough. But I've got to be all of those things in my, my spiritual fight against the principalities and powers and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's why Paul says over and over and over again in Ephesians 6, you've got to stand your ground. He's using military language, and you know the armor of God is obviously military language, and Paul's saying you've got to stand your ground. You've got to hold your position. You can't give one inch to the enemy, and it's going to be tough. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not for the weak. You're going to have to fight. Again, Red Path is helpful. He says, every man, and you could insert woman, of God is engaged somewhere in the depths of his soul in a spiritual battle. There he has to fight with everything he possesses, not only to maintain his stand in the passive sense, but, as Paul emphasizes, to wrestle. He goes on and he says, this is the language of personal conflict. Toe-to-toe with the enemy of our souls to resist evil in the name of the Lord. It's easy for Christian people to somehow avoid the sense of battle and conflict and take their ease. Maybe one of the good things that comes out of what we're facing as a nation right now is we're just sort of shocked out of our tendency to fall into a comfortable, easy routine. And everything gets flipped on its head and you realize, wait a minute, wait a minute, we do live in a dangerous world. And some of those dangers you can see, some of those dangers you can only see under a microscope, and some of them you can't see with any microscope. But the fact that you can't see those spiritual dangers doesn't mean they're not real. There's a lesson here about spiritual warfare. Number four, David and his mighty men teach us about the sovereignty of God. There's two verses I want to go back and direct your attention to thinking about the sovereignty of God. 2 Samuel 23, verse 10. We're reading about Eliezer. It says, He arose, he struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And who brought about the great victory? The Lord brought about a great victory. And on some level, we read that and we say, Wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that a typo? Don't you mean Eliezer brought about a great victory? He's the guy killing the Philistines. He's the guy hanging on to his sword till he, he literally can't let go of his weapon. 
And the text upholds both of these things. This man fought bravely. He displayed great courage, but it was the Lord who brought about the victory. Look just a few verses down. We're reading now about Shema, verse 12. It says, he took his stand in the midst of the plot. He defended it, and he struck down the Philistines. And it was the Lord who worked a great victory. Both of these threads run all the way through the Bible. Our responsibility to be bold and courageous and strong and heroic, we're responsible for the things that we do or don't do, and underneath it all, the idea that God is completely sovereign over all of it. And the Bible really doesn't sort of tip in either direction. It says the decisions you make are real. You're going to have to make them. Make the right one. The things that you're going to have to do are hard. You're going to have to be strong and courageous and brave. But behind all of it, we understand that God's sovereign over our lives. Paul talks about this dynamic in Philippians 2. If you've read Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, he tells the church, some of his favorite people on the whole earth, he says, you have got to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You are going to have to work out, not work for but you're going to have to work out the salvation, this thing that God has started in your life. You're going to have to work that out with fear and trembling, and you're going to do it knowing that God is the one working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's sovereign over all of it. It doesn't absolve you and I of the responsibility of working out our salvation. It just reminds us that in the end, God's sovereign over the whole thing. We're reminded of God's sovereignty here. Number five. This is a good one, a big one. David and his mighty men teach us a lesson about the kind of people that God typically uses. Who are the people that God typically uses? Take a minute and think about the mighty men. Who are these guys? Who was who this group of people that gathered around David early in his life and then stuck with him to the end? We read a few weeks ago, in 1 Samuel 22, that the men that surrounded David had these characteristics. They were men in distress, they were men in debt, and they were bitter in soul. David's in the wilderness, he's running for his life, and these are the people that God sends him to help. David, I'm sending reinforcements. They're in distress. They owe money. And they have really bad attitudes. There's your team. I picked it for you. And David takes these guys and he prays with these guys and he talks with these guys and he lives with these guys. And at times, I'll be honest, he sins with these guys, but then he repents with these guys. And in the end, we read 2 Samuel 23 and we say the guys who were in distress and debt and bitter, those men became doers of great, deeds. Those men became the kind of men who, when snow was falling and a lion was in the well about to poison the water supply, said, I'll go down and kill the lion. Those are the guys who stood their ground in a battle when everyone else around them was running away. Those are the guys who went into battle against an Egyptian unarmed and said, I don't need a weapon because he has a weapon and I'll use it to kill him. I mean, these were brave, heroic men, but they weren't always that. Think about Jesus. Think about the disciples. 
when they first start following Jesus? Who were those guys? What were they like? They were tax collectors. They were political radicals, people who would be banned on social media for their radical hate speech these days. The disciples, they were blue-collar fishermen, just common, uneducated guys. They were not from the part of the nation that you expected leaders to come from. They were from the sticks. They were what we might call hillbillies or rednecks or bumpkins. They were nobodies. They were the kind of guys that argued. They got in arguments. They did it quietly, but they got in arguments about who was the most important in the group. And Jesus had to turn around and say, fellas, fellas, stop. They were the kind of guys that when they went to a town and Jesus preached and nobody listened, and they're walking out of town say, Jesus, do you want us to destroy the town with fire? And again, Jesus says, no, we're not going to destroy the town with fire. Think about Peter. Peter's the kind of guy that in the most important, critical moment of his life, when all the cards were on the table, he took a nap three times. And then when he finally woke up, he did his best mighty man impersonation and took a hack at somebody's head with a sword, but he was still groggy or it was dark or who knows. He only got the guy's ear. And then later that same evening, denied Jesus with a string of four-letter words attached to it. That's who the disciples were. But if you keep reading in the story, these guys who were embarrassingly pathetic end up being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's not very long into the book of Acts where they're turning the world upside down. They're threatening the power structures in Jerusalem and across the empire. What in the world happened? Well, it's the same thing that always happens. God likes to take a bunch of nobodies and he uses them to do a great thing. It's what Paul said to the church in Corinth. He said, just think about who you guys were. You talk about not flattering your audience. He said, you're a bunch of fools. You're a bunch of weak people. You're just the kind of people that God delights to use. No different than the mighty men. One last thought. This flows out of what we just said. David and his mighty men give us a preview of Jesus. There's a preview of Jesus here. If you were with us a couple of years ago when we went through the Gospel of the Luke, one of, one of the things we said week in and week out is Luke 19.10 describes Jesus' mission. He came to seek and to save the lost. That was the mission. It wasn't necessarily to teach. It wasn't to perform miracles. It wasn't to draw a crowd. It wasn't to be popular. He came to seek and save the lost. He did that by dying on the cross for sinners. If ever there was a person in the history of the world who could have accomplished his mission solo, it was Jesus. He came to seek and save the lost. He didn't need any help in accomplishing that mission. But he brought people around him. Gospel of Luke talks about a group of 72 disciples who learned from Jesus and who Jesus sent out. The Bible talks about a group of 12 apostles that Jesus called to be with him. And he gave them authority to teach and to heal and to cast out demons. The Bible even talks about an inner circle of three guys, 
Peter, James, and John that Jesus devoted more time to, exclusive time to, training them and preparing them for the day that they would lead. It's, it's, it's not surprising when you look at Jesus and how he operated and you look back at David and how he operated, you say, you know, Jesus is kind of doing David-like things here. Or maybe depending on your perspective, you look at David and say, he's kind of doing Jesus-like things here. I mean, he, he's surrounded by a bunch of unmighty men. And he spends some time with them. And by the time you get to the story, you realize these guys are great. They are doers of great deeds. You look at Jesus and you say, he calls a bunch of nobodies. No Pharisees. No Sadducees. No scribes. No one of the family of the chief priests. Just a bunch of nobodies. And they don't look promising. But if you keep reading in the story... They turn into doers of great deeds. One of the things we've said in, in our study of David is that David is probably the clearest preview of Jesus in all of the Old Testament. All of these stories, all of these episodes from David's life just keep pointing us forward to thinking about Jesus in so many ways. David coming from humble origins and rising to be the king. David from Bethlehem, a small village that no one really thought much of. We've talked about maybe the most important messianic prophecy in the entire Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, where God says to David, you're not going to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house, and I'm going to give you a son who will sit on your throne forever. And if you're tracking through the David story and you're connecting all these dots, you get to this chapter and you say, oh, of course, David had a group of nobodies that he turned into somebodies. Of course he did. Because later, the true son of David, Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, born to be the king, took a bunch of nobodies and he turned them into somebodies too. And the beautiful hope of this story is that Jesus is still doing the same thing today. He delights to use the same kind of people that he used in David's day, that he used in New Testament times. He's doing the exact same thing today. He's taking nobodies, people who aren't very powerful, people who aren't very knowledgeable, and he's using them to turn the world upside down. We pray that he would do that in us and through us. So that's David and his mighty men. Next week, we're going to just press on. We're going to look at 2 Samuel 24. It's an interesting episode from David's life. Uh, it's an episode where David takes a census of the people. Really one of the, the strangest stories from all of David's life. It gets tacked on here at the end. We're going to try to make sense of it next week.